Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash nocturnal. Chapter 15. Chief Sow's Office When Brian and Pookie entered the chief's office, four people were already there. Chief Zhao sat behind her desk, her blue uniform free of the slightest hint of a wrinkle. Assistant Chief Sean Robertson stood a little behind her and a little to her left. To the right of the desk, in chairs against the wall, sat Jesse Sharrow, the Homicide Division Captain, and Assistant D.A. Jennifer Wills. Sharrow's perfectly pressed blues were a dark contrast to his bushy white eyebrows and slicked-back white hair. Wills had her legs crossed, making her skirt look even shorter than it was. A black pump dangled provocatively from an extended toe. Sal wasn't much for decoration. A big, dark wood desk dominated the room. Commendations hung on the walls, as did several framed pictures of Chief Zhao shaking hands with various police officers and elected officials. Two of those pictures showed her with governors of California, both the current and the former. The room's largest photo showed Zhao shaking hands with a smiling Jason Collins, San Francisco's heartthrob of a mayor. Behind Zhao's chair, on angled wooden poles, hung the U.S. flag and the dark blue governor's flag of California. Her desktop looked larger than it was because there was almost nothing on it other than a three-panel picture frame, a panel for each of her twin daughters and one for her husband, and a closed manila folder. It wasn't the first time Brian had been in here, staring at a folder just like that one. Zhao's office felt more ominous than he remembered, the air thick with an oppressive potential of career destruction. Maybe he was justified in the shooting of Carlos Smith. Now they knew the would-be shotgun assassin's name. But justified or not, fourteen years as a cop hung in the balance. Chief Zhao gestured to two chairs in front of her desk. Inspector Clauser, Inspector Chang, have a seat, please. Brian walked to the chair on the right, his eyes never straying from the manila folder. Its edges perfectly paralleled the edges of the desk. It couldn't have been more dead center if Zhao had used a tape measure. Brian sat. So did Pookie. Waves of nausea bubbled in Brian's stomach. He would have to stay focused. His whole body throbbed, but he could deal with that. What he couldn't deal with was losing his breakfast in the office of the chief of police. Robertson nodded at Pookie, then gave Brian a small smile. Was that a good thing? Amy Zhao had held the chief position for twelve years, an infinite tenure by San Francisco standards. While many, many in-house seminars had taught Brian the evils of reacting to a woman's looks, he couldn't deny that Zhao was quite attractive. By the numbers, anyway. Despite being in her late fifties, Pookie said that Zhao would have been officially milfalicious if she ever learned how to smile. She picked up the folder, opened it for a second, then put it down again and straightened it, making sure it was perfectly centered. She already knew the results, obviously. Checking them again seemed more of a nervous tick than anything else. She stared at Brian. He tried to sit still. Chief Zhao left the folder on her desk as she opened it again. This time she leaned forward and read aloud from it. Regarding the incident of January 1st, she said, 
the use of lethal force against Carlos Smith, a resident of South San Francisco. Preliminary findings indicate that Inspector Brian Clauser acted in a manner appropriate with the situation. Inspector Clauser's actions saved lives. She closed the folder, straightened it, then stared at him. We still have to go through the formal review board, but I can't imagine there will be an issue. Based on the eyewitness accounts I read, I will communicate to the review board my opinion on the situation. The breath slid out of Brian's lungs. He was off the hook. That's great, Chief. Robertson came around the desk, clapped Brian on the back. Come on, Clouser, he said. You knew this was a righteous shoot. Brian shrugged, tried to play the part. I keep winding up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Robertson shook his head. You did what had to be done, and this isn't the first time. You saved lives. You had no choice. Zhao turned to Jennifer. Miss Wills, any further comments from the DA's office? No, Chief Zhao, Jennifer said. Considering Smith's record of violence, even the usual San Francisco protester crowd will probably ignore this one. We'll be ready for the inevitable lawsuit from Smith's family. But between the witnesses and the security camera footage, we're in the clear. Zhao nodded, then turned back to Brian. I have some more good news. Steve Boyd investigated the apartment of Joseph Lombardi, also known as Jojo Lombardi. Boyd found evidence to make Lombardi our lead suspect in the Oblomowitz case. We have that name because of you and Pookie. Brian nodded. Lonza had given up Jojo, true, but it remained to be seen if anyone would ever see Lombardi alive again. Lonza needed someone to go down for the crime, to show the Norteños that blood had been settled with blood. Odds were that Lombardi would turn up dead. The white-haired Sharrow stood. Chief Zhao, does Clauser need to be on desk duty while this case is with the shooting review board? No, Zhao said. This was a clean shoot. Inspector Clauser, you and Inspector Chang will continue to work on the Oblomowitz task force. We need you guys too much right now to put you behind a desk. That's it, people. Get back to it. He felt so relieved it almost made him forget about his sour, churning stomach. Brian didn't care about Carlos Smith, but he did care about his job. Anything could happen in a shooting review. Ignoring his body's numerous complaints, Brian stood, thanked everyone for their support, then walked out of Chief Zhao's office, happy to still be a cop. Chapter 16 The White Room Warm. Toasty warm. Blankets. Soft blankets. Dry blankets. Clean clothes that slid against his skin. Skin that was scrubbed free of dirt and grime and sweat for the first time in months. Aggie rolled over and heard a metallic rattle. He blinked a few times as he woke. Was he wearing pajamas? He flashed back to his childhood bed in Detroit, to his mother gently waking him with loving words and hugs, the smell of pancakes filling the small house. But this place didn't smell like pancakes. It smelled like paint. It smelled like bleach. He was on his side, the blankets bunched up around him, lying on a mattress so thin he could feel the hard floor beneath. The world seemed to move, to wave, but he knew from long experience that was just the horse talking. He opened his eyes and blinked. Yeah, he was still more than a little high. 
Was this really happening? Just inches from his face was a wall made of broken bricks and rounded stones, all coated with a glaze of bright white enamel so thick the surface must have been painted over and over and over again. Something heavy hung around his neck. Aggie's hand shot up to find a flat metal collar. There was barely enough room to slide a finger between the collar and his neck. But inside, he felt a soft leather strip to cushion the metal against his skin. More metallic rattling. His hands reached behind the collar, found a chain. He sat up, hands pulling the chain around where he could see it. Stainless steel, its chrome-like sheen reflecting fluorescent lights from above, each quarter-inch thick link showing a tiny curved reflection of his black skin and shocked face. He looked down the chain's path. It led into a stainless steel ring mounted flat into the white wall. Oh, shit. Please just let this be a bad trip. Ayudenos, a man said. Aggie turned away from the white wall, toward the voice, and saw a family. Small boy clinging to his mother, mother clinging to him, father with arms protectively wrapped around them both. The woman and the boy looked terrified, while the man stared with eyes that promised death to anyone that came near. Black hair, tan skin, they looked like Mexicans. All three of them wore pajamas, pale blue cotton for the man, fuchsia silk for the woman, pink flannel with blue cartoon puppies for the boy. The clothes looked clean, but well used, the same way clothes looked in the Salvation Army store on Sutter Street. Like Aggie, they all wore stainless steel metal collars with chains leading into holes in the wall. Aggie stood and started walking around slowly, his chain rattling across the stones beneath and behind him. Por favor, ayúrenos, the man said. Ayure a mi familia. I don't speak Beaner. Aggie said. You speak English? The man shook his head. No speak. Figured. Fucking people coming to this country without speaking the language. What is this place? Aggie said. What the hell are we doing here? The man shook his head. No entiendo, señor. Aggie looked around the room. The wall shimmered shifted. The smack made it hard to focus. He wasn't sure if he was seeing reality or not, but the circular room looked like it had a curved ceiling, sort of like a dome, about thirty feet across with a high point maybe fifteen feet off the floor. The floor looked the same as the walls, rocks and bricks laid down in a rough, flat pattern, repeatedly slathered with enamel paint. Aggie felt like he was inside a big stone igloo, on the far side of the room stood a door of bright white bars, a prison door. Ten mattresses lay on the floor, one for each of the circular rings Aggie counted in the walls. Chains led out of four of the rings, connecting to Aggie and the three other people. Several loose blankets lay on each mattress. The blankets, like the clothes, had that second-hand look. But everything, from the clothes to the blankets to the mattresses to the walls, looked clean. A one-foot circular stainless steel flange marked the center of the room's floor. Aggie saw three rolls of toilet paper sitting on the flange. Was that where he was supposed to shit? Something really fucked up was going on here, and Aggie wanted out. He might be a bum, 
might have phoned in all pretense of a real life many years ago, but the significance of being a black man in a collar and chains was not lost on him. The woman started to cry. The little boy looked at her, then started to do the same, and again buried his head in her bosom. The man kept staring at Aggie. I got no idea what's going on, Aggie said. If you want help, ask someone else. A metallic noise rang from the walls and echoed through the small room. Three heads looked around, Aggie, the man and the woman, eyes searching for the source of the sound. The little boy didn't look up. Another clang. Aggie realized it came from the holes in the wall. Then the sound of chains rattling. Aggie's collar yanked him backward. He stumbled and fell, banging his elbow, then choked as the chain dragged him across the hard, bumpy ground. He reached out, hands grabbing for anything, but his fingers found only blankets that offered no resistance. The woman slid across the floor, her hands clutching her child tight to her chest. Jesus, no, Sayuda! The man tried to fight, but the chain dragged him along as easily as it did the woman. The little boy just screamed. The chains pulled him away from his mother. Their arms grabbed at each other, but they were powerless against the steady mechanical force. Aggie felt his back hit the wall, then felt himself pulled up the wall, the collar's edge digging into his lower jaw, pressing against his throat and cutting off his air. He managed to get his feet under him just as the chain pulled the collar against the wall ring, where it clanged home with a metal-on-metal authority. The yanking stopped. Aggie sucked in a deep, panicked breath. He grabbed the collar and tried to lean forward, but the chain wouldn't budge. All four prisoners were in the same predicament. Collars pulled tight against stainless steel rings. Hands grabbed at necks, feet pushed against white walls, but none of them could move. They all stood there, waiting. Mama! The boy screeched, finally finding his voice. ¿Qué está pasando? No sé, she said. Sé valiente. Lo protegeré. For some reason, Aggie recognized that last bit of Mexican. Be brave. I will protect you. But the mother couldn't do anything. She was as powerless as the boy was. The sound of a big key ratcheting open a metal lock silenced them all. The white prison gate swung out. Was this really happening? Everything seemed to blur. The walls blazed with a white that couldn't possibly exist in the real world. A bad trip. A bad trip. That's all this is. I'm tripping. When he saw what walked through the cell door, Aggie's instincts took over. It didn't matter if he was high, dreaming, or stone-cold sober. He pulled harder than he'd ever thought possible. Pulled so hard he almost choked himself out. But still the collar refused to budge. Men in hooded white robes with rope belts tied around their waists. Only they weren't men. They had the faces of monsters. A pig, a wolf, a tiger, a bear, a goblin. Twisted, evil smiles, beady eyes blinking away. Something primitive and raw inside of Aggie screamed for deliverance. Pigface carried a wooden pole, perhaps just over ten feet in length. The pole ended in a stainless steel hook. The five robe-covered monsters moved slowly toward the boy. 
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. child, like my daughter was my child, with her skin as smooth as melted chocolate. My daughter, please don't kill my daughter. The Mexican man screamed with rage. Aggie blinked, shaking away the memories that he'd worked so hard to leave behind. The woman screamed too, hers one of heart-wrenching fear. Her son mimicked the sound, his all the more hurtful for its high-pitched terror. The boy saw the monsters coming for him. He thrashed like an epileptic, spit and blood dribbling from his mouth, his eyes so wide that even from fifteen feet away, Aggie saw the boy's full brown irises. The boy clawed at his collar, his fingernails cutting into his own soft skin. The man continued to shout threats that Aggie didn't understand, protective rage roaring out and echoing off the white walls. The white-robed men ignored him. They stopped a few feet from the boy. One of them produced some kind of remote control and hit a button. The boy's chain loosened. He shot forward, but only made it four feet before the chain yanked taut again, and his feet flew out from under him. The boy fell hard on his back. He rolled to his hands and knees, screaming, crying, bleeding, trying to get up. But the five were on him. Black-gloved hands reached out from white sleeves and held him tight. Pigface reached down with a pole and slid the steel hook through the back of the boy's collar. The one with the remote control hit another button. The boy's chain went completely slack and slid free from the hole in the wall. It hit the floor with a cascading rattle, one end still connected to the collar, the other end connected to nothing. Pigface gripped the pole and walked to the door, dragging the boy along behind him. The loose chain trailed along like a dead snake links ringing against the stone and brick floor. Aggie wanted to wake the fuck up, and wake the fuck up right now. The mother begged. The father roared. The boy's clutching fingers left thin red smears against the white floor. Pigface walked out the door. He turned right and vanished behind a corner. The boy slid out behind him, dragged by the pole. The last sight of him was his chain, pulled out of the room with a final thin ring when it clanged against the open white jail cell door. The other monsters walked out. One by one, they turned the corner and were gone. Goblin Face was the last to leave. He turned and pushed the cell door shut behind him. It clanged home, the metallic sound echoing and fading as the mother's screams went on and on. Chapter 17 Rex gets in trouble. Rex sat in the waiting room of St. Francis Hospital, a new cast on his broken right arm. The cast ran from above his elbow down to his hand, wrapping across his palm, leaving his thumb peeking out of a white hole. Stupid thing would be on for at least four weeks. A feeling of pure dread hung in his chest and head, dragging his chin down almost to his sternum. The arm had been bad, real bad, 
but now Roberta was coming. Alex Panos had nothing on Rex's mother. He sniffled back tears. They didn't have money for this. They didn't have insurance. But Alex had broken his arm. What was Rex supposed to do? She came through the doors, saw him immediately, and made a beeline right for him. Roberta, too skinny, nasty, wiry hair that smelled like cigarettes, and that disgusting skin. She stood in front of him. His chin tried to dig itself even deeper into his chest. She stared. He wanted to just die. So you are fighting again? Rex shook his head no, but even as he did it, he knew better. Don't lie to me, boy! Look at your goddamn nose! You are fighting again! He felt the tears coming. He hated himself for crying. He hated her for making him cry. He hated Alex for all of it. He hated his life. But they attacked me, Mom, and... Don't you call me that! Roberta's voice carried through the waiting room of St. Francis, drawing stares from the walking wounded awaiting treatment. She saw the glances, lowered her voice to a nasty hiss. You can just stop it right now, Rex! Do you have any idea what this is going to cost me? Rex shook his head again. The tears streamed down his face. Roberta huffed and strode over to the billing desk. Rex tried to slink even deeper, but there was nowhere left to go. Roberta and the woman behind the counter exchanged words. Then the woman handed Roberta a bill. Roberta read it. Then she turned to look at him, and the world grew colder. Rex hid his face in his uncasted hand, tears wetting his palms. He rocked back and forth. He didn't want to go with her, but he had no place else to go. He had no one. Chapter 18 Shero Sends Brian Home Clouser! Someone shook his shoulder. Brian tried to say something to the effect of, Leave me alone or I'll kill you. But all that came out was a three-syllable mumble. Another shake. Clouser! Captain Shero's voice. Brian blinked awake. Clouser, this isn't the place for a nap. Damn. He had fallen asleep at his desk. Sorry, Captain. Jesse Shero glared down. His white hair and bushy white eyebrows framed his weathered scowl. Brian started to stand up. His butt cleared only one inch of airspace before aching muscles and bones froze him in place, then promptly dropped him back down on the chair. Good God, man, Shero said. Wipe that drool off your chin, will you? Brian touched his cheek, cold and slimy. Well, that was certainly a way to score points with your boss. He wiped away the spit. Shero pointed to the stack of paper on Brian's desk. Reprint that. Spots of drool had soaked into Brian's report. Sorry, Brian said. Go home, Clouser. You're a dumbass coming in here like this, bringing your germs in with you. You want to put the whole department down? I wasn't planning on making out with anyone, Captain. Except for you, of course. Blow it out your ass. Shero said. You're so ugly you make my wife look hot, and that's saying something. It sure is. Shero snarled and pointed a finger at Brian's face. 
Watch it, Clouser. Don't talk bad about my wife. Yes, Captain. Seriously. Go home. But, Cap, I still have paperwork for the shooting review board to... Shut your pie hole. Get out of here. In fact, don't bother reprinting that report. Just email it to me. I don't want to touch anything that's come anywhere near you. Be out of here in the next ten minutes. Shero turned and stormed off. Brian hadn't taken a sick day in four years, but after falling asleep at his desk, drooling on paperwork, maybe it was for the best if he cleared out. With both hands flat on the desk, he pushed himself to a standing position, every muscle screaming the biological equivalent of horrid obscenities. A crumpled-up twenty-dollar bill landed on his desk. Brian looked up. Pookie had thrown it. Take a cab, Pookie said. I'm not driving you. Don't want a sick guy in your car? Pookie let out a noise of disgust. You've already been in my car. I'm not driving you because you said you'd make out with Shero and not me. I have feelings, you know. Sorry about that. Pookie shook his head. Men, you're all pigs. Do I need to call you an ambulance instead of a cab? No, I'm good. Brian shuffled out of the office and headed for the elevator. The sooner he got to sleep, in an actual bed, the better. Chapter 19 Robin Gets the Call A Rare, Quiet Moment at Home Robin was taking advantage of the time to sit on her couch and do nothing. Nothing but scratch the ear of her dog, Emma. Emma's head rested on Robin's lap. Emma wasn't supposed to be on the couch. She knew that. Robin knew that. Yet neither of them was motivated enough to do anything about it. Robin was home so little these days, she didn't have it in her heart to scold the 65-pound German shorthair pointer for wanting to be closer. Robin slowly swirled the dog's floppy black ear. Emma moaned in happiness with a doggy equivalent of a cat's purr. As Robin's responsibilities grew, so did her time at the morgue. Thankfully, her next-door neighbor, Max Blankenship, could almost always swing over to take care of Emma if Robin worked late. Max would take Emma to his place to play with Billy, Max's gigantic pit bull. Max was sweet, kind, clever, handsome, sexy as hell, and had a key to her apartment. The perfect man, if not for the small fact that Big Max was as gay as gay gets. Robin's cell phone rang. She looked at it but didn't recognize the incoming number. She thought of ignoring it, but it might be work-related, so she answered. Hello? Dr. Robin Hudson? Asked a woman's voice. This is she who's calling, please. Mayor Jason Collins' office. The mayor would like to speak with you. Can you hold for a moment? Uh, sure. The phone switched to elevator music. The mayor's office? It was ten o'clock at night. And more than that, the mayor's office? Why would the mayor be calling her? Because it was the mayor who appointed the chief medical examiner. Oh, no. Had something happened to Dr. Metz? The on-hold music clicked off. Dr. Hudson. She'd heard his voice dozens of times on newscasts. This wasn't a prank. Holy shit. Yes, this is Robin Hudson. This is Mayor Collins. Sorry to bother you so late at night, Dr. Hudson. Uh, Do you prefer to be called doctor, or can I just call you Robin? Robin is fine. Is Dr. Metz okay? Sadly, no. 
the mayor said. Dr. Metz suffered a heart attack earlier this evening. He's at San Francisco General. My God. Her heart suddenly pounded at the thought of never seeing her friend again, of death taking him away forever. Is he going to make it? They think so, the mayor said. He's in stable condition, but he's not out of the woods yet. I'll have my office put you on the notification list. The hospital calls me with any information. I'll be sure to relay that same information right out to you. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I assume you understand why I'm calling. Robin nodded to herself, scratched Emma's ear. Someone needs to run the medical examiner's office. That's right. I'm hoping our famous Silver Eagle will make a full recovery. If he is unable to return to work, we'll launch a nationwide search for a new chief medical examiner. Until we know if he'll be okay, however, can I count on you to run the ship? Was she ready for this? Could she run the department and not screw it up? There wasn't any time to doubt herself. Metz would expect her to handle things in his absence. Of course, Robin said. I'll keep everything running smoothly, just the way Dr. Metz likes it. Excellent. Now, I know this is upsetting news and a lot of information to process, so I'll let you go. I will say that I'm pleased a representative of our active Asian American community is there to take care of things in the interim. Were she not so shocked and saddened by the news of her mentor's heart attack, Robin might have laughed. Mayor Collins would find a way to spin this into votes. Asians made up a third of San Francisco's voters. He probably didn't know she'd grown up in Canada, the daughter of an immigrant Englishman. Still, she'd inherited her mother's looks, and that meant she'd make a good potential photo op for the mayor. Not that she'd mind taking a picture with a hunk like Collins. With his tailored suits, expensive haircuts, and big-jawed smile, the handsome mayor had topped most eligible bachelor lists for years. Something else to think on, he said. Well, we will, if necessary, do a search for a new chief M.E. You're in charge right now. If you want that job long-term someday, this gives you a hell of a leg up. She was already being considered for the top spot? Of course, Mr. Mayor. Just one more thing, Robin. The Paul Maloney case is sensitive, delicate. I know Dr. Metz finished the examination, so I'm having Maloney's body removed from the morgue. And you're taking it where? Somewhere safe, he said. I'm too worried that with Maloney's past, victims or relatives of victims might want to desecrate the body. Someone would try to break into the San Francisco morgue? Mr. Mayor, I don't think you need to worry about that. I am worried about it, he said. I know the morgue is at the Hall of Justice, but remember that cops are parents too. With Dr. Metz out of commission for the first time in recent memory, someone might get ideas. I want to remove that temptation. Maloney's body will be gone when you arrive tomorrow morning. Understand? She didn't understand at all. The processing of the deceased was done under a strict protocol. But maybe this was how politics worked. At any rate, Jason Collins was the boss, and she wasn't going to rock the boat so soon not when her future career might be on the line. Yes, Mr. Mayor, she said. I understand. Great. Robin, I'm thrilled you're in on this. We'll let you know when Dr. Metz can have visitors. Good night. Good night, she said. She hung up and stared at the phone. She stared at it so long that Emma wondered what was going on, thought the phone might be a treat, so she stared at it as well. Robin put the phone down then scooched both of Emma's ears. The dog's eyes narrowed sleepily, and she growl-moaned with pure love. Hear that, baby girl? Robin said. 
I'm sorry, but it looks like you might be seeing more of your Uncle Max. A lot more. You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal Audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.